The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 205. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page, at Brian McClanahan. And, of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. It's at Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to go out and search for all those things, just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll find all my social media buttons. Click on those, take you those accounts, and just like away. Also, don't forget you can support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll at mclanahanacademy.com. I've got five courses for sale there. Each one of those courses helps support the show, helps support uh, my, all my educational endeavors, and you can get an education, a history education from someone you really trust. And of course, if you use the coupon code PODCAST, you get 10% off, so it's a great deal. Going out there, mclanahanacademy.com, you get great courses, and you get 10% off for simply being a podcast listener. Also, you can support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. And as always, you can support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to learntruehistory.com. That's learntrue, T-R-U-E, history.com. Uh, that is my affiliate link for Liberty Classroom. Great website. A lot of bang for your buck. I teach there along with Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, Brad Berzer, Jason Jewell, Bob Murphy, a whole slew of great professors, history, economics, philosophy, a lot of good stuff. So you want to go to learntrue, T-R-U-E, history.com, and enroll there as well. And you can always get your Brian McClanahan Show gear at redbubble.com. You can get uh, stickers, T-shirts, skins for your electronic devices, wall clocks, wall plates. they got all kinds of cool stuff with my logo on it. So go out to redbubble.com and do a search for my name, Brian McClanahan. Come up with all that cool stuff. You're going to want that stuff. It'll also help spread the word for The Brian McClanahan Show. And, of course, leave a review on your favorite podcast website. The more reviews, the better. Uh, Most people listen through iTunes or Apple Podcasts, so leave a review there. Uh, That does help move the show up the list, so to speak, when you start talking about uh, these, these rankings they do of the podcast. So, uh, I'd love your support. I do appreciate everything you all do to help support the show and uh, get the word out about the show. Okay, all that said, we got a really cool topic today. It's one that um, I think is it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Um, and it has to do with my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, at least the second half of that book. It's, it's relevant to that uh, because in the second half of that book, I focus a lot on the federal judiciary. Uh, In fact, one astute reader pointed out this could have been how the Supreme Court screwed up America, and that was going to be the original title of the book. But um, because uh, we wanted to capitalize on Hamilton and and, uh, that phenomenon, uh, and uh, we we decided to focus half the book on Hamilton and then half the book on the Supreme Court, which they all work together, because the whole problem in America, from the top down, that's the real problem, the top down, the real problem in American politics is nationalism. Uh, It doesn't matter, and this is where Think Locally, Act Locally comes in. It really doesn't matter what issue you're talking about. It's nationalism that's creating this climate of uh, instability in America because we want the central authority to do everything. And uh, that's extremely problematic when it comes to American politics, and particularly social and cultural issues. Um, But one of the things that the left has been very famous in doing, the progressives, is using the court system to their advantage to drive their agenda. And I think what you're starting to see, um, now that Ruth Bader Ginsburg has had lung cancer, uh, she's missed oral arguments, um, you're starting to see a sense of panic 
on the left because uh, at this point the court is six to three, supposedly conservative, quote unquote conservative, progressive. And if Ginsburg is gone, there's a good chance Donald Trump could appoint another uh, Supreme Court justice in the next two years if she doesn't pull through in her in her health concerns. So that would make it seven two. And so there is a there is a panic that's starting to develop on the left. And of course, the cult following for for RGB is one of the strangest things I've ever seen. Well, RGB that, that that along with AOC, these are two things that I just RGB is red, green, blue when you're starting to plug something into your TV, and AOC is the Articles of Confederation. Regardless, we now we got these two things thrown around by progressives because they don't know how to come up with nicknames. I mean, that's that's the truth. Um, so we've got uh, all this. Uh, fear and panic over Ruth Bader Ginsburg not being on the Supreme Court any longer. And uh, that's been evident on Twitter. It's been evident in social media. But more importantly, I've got an article from you published in Politico that talks about the real problem. This article is the titled, Why There's No Liberal Federalist Society. The legal left has a money problem, a history problem, and maybe worst of all, a big idea problem. And it's written by Evan Mandary. And I don't know anything about Evan Mandary, but um, it's in Politico. And Mandary, of course, is firmly behind the idea the left does need a counterweight to the Federalist Society because for some reason he believes that the Federalist Society has had such a great impact on the American legal system that we've all gone back to 1789. Um, I I find this argument funny that that the left fears this quote-unquote conservative Supreme Court, they fear it. It's an irrational fear because if you look at the court, I mean, just go back to Obamacare, right? I mean, the court was supposed to overturn Obamacare, and we got Obamacare declared constitutional. Um, The court has been driving a nationalist agenda, whether it's on the left or the right, for decades. Uh, it, It really doesn't matter. And um, this is this is the funniest part about it. Somehow the, the Federalist Society is going to drive us into a a uh, conservative utopia is just laughable to me. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying, number one, I am on the Federalist Society speakers list. Um, I have spoken before Federalist Society events before. I don't do a whole lot of it now, but I have before. And I think there's a lot of good people in the Federalist Society. There are a lot of good uh, judges that are part of this. There's a lot of good lawyers that are part of this. Um, and a lot of people that firmly believe in real federalism. That said, there's a lot of opportunists in the Federalist Society, too, that are using this to advance their career because they're conservatives, and they do become politically driven on the bench. That is one of the complaints of this piece, and I actually do agree with that. But it's the left that created this problem to begin with. Now, I'm going to get into what I'm, I'm going to read this piece because it's very interesting. Some parts of it are very interesting. I'm going to comment on this as I go through it. So, again, this is uh, uh, Evan Mandary. I can never remember the guy's name. Evan Mandary, uh, and he's writing in, in a Politico about this, uh, why there's no liberal Federalist Society. So he begins, <clears throat> It's been more than two weeks since uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg began missing Supreme Court oral arguments while recovering from cancer surgery, and the White House is repeated, reportedly drafting a short list of replacements. If President Donald Trump does get a chance to nominate the liberal icon successor, one thing can be said with near certainty. Whoever takes her seat will come with a firm stamp of approval from the arch-conservative Federalist Society. The Supreme Court, in other words, may be about to get another seismic jolt rightward, thanks in part to the Federalists, and liberals don't seem to have an answer to what has long been an asymmetrical fight in the legal world. 
Over the past three decades, the Federalist Society has ascended from modest origins to become one of the most influential legal organizations in American history, with intellectual reach and political clout that no other legal group can match. As a presidential candidate in 2016, Trump effectively outsourced his Supreme Court picks to Federalist Executive Vice President Leonard Leo, and the group has enjoyed a near lockdown on new appointments to the federal bench under Trump, most notably on the Supreme Court, where Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch each had long-standing Federalist ties prior to their nominations. So where's the response from the left? So he begins this by saying the Federalist Society is just messing everything up in the American legal profession. We've got Trump ready to appoint another person onto the bench, and oh no, we were going to have another Federalist Society judge there. Now, of course, this doesn't take into account a couple of things. Number one, we've got two judges that are on the right in the 6-3 majority that, are, that aren't spring chickens. I mean, look, uh, Alito and Thomas are not young guys. And so who's to say in four years or two years from now, if Trump's off, out of office and you've got a, a, a Democrat in power, that they don't get a chance to appoint two judges. But, I mean, the real fear is that Trump's going to get three nominations in his four years in, uh, in an office, and that is going to radically shift American jurisprudence and how we think about American law and, of course, uh, lawmaking. This is because the court has become the focal point of the left because they know they can't win legislatively. I mean, they really know this. So all they've done is gone out and used the court to their advantage. Well, if we can't win legislatively, we'll get some progressive judge to say to legislate from the bench. They're not only going to, going to say this law is constitutional, they're going to create law. They're going to craft law from the bench. Uh, and this has been a very powerful tool in advancing a leftist agenda. So again, the fact that they don't have this is sheer panic. You can see it with the, with the Kavanaugh appointment hearings. And I can only imagine what it's going to be like, the circus, if Ruth Bader Ginsburg is forced to retire or if she dies uh, while Trump is in office, and what's going to happen, the, the hearings. I mean, it is going to be an absolute madhouse. Um, and so it, it will be political theater at its best. Shakespeare couldn't have written it better when we get to that point. But all of that said, this is the fear. The Federalist Society, which somehow is arch-conservative. Now, I'm going to get into their positions on some things and how these justices... I mean, wait a second here. I mean, we're, we're mistaking some things that aren't really arch-conservative. But regardless, uh, let's see. As liberals anxiously watch Trump's Trump populate the federal bench with one dyed-in-the-wool conservative after another. It's only natural for them to ask why there's no heavyweight progressive organization to counter its influence. Well, they have it. It's called law schools. And he does bring that up. Well, when we do dominate the law schools, I mean, that's true. Well, they have it. I mean, all they got to do is go out and just pick law school uh, uh, professors. I mean, look at Barack Obama, Elizabeth Warren. They just go out and get some law school professors, and they're good to go. They don't need the Federalist Society. You see, the Federalist Society exists because... <laughs> They're a minority. They're a faction within the, the profession that's dominated by leftists. So, of course, they're going to have something like this. I mean, but regardless, they don't need these heavyweight groups. There are some academic groups with a progressive bent, such as the Law and Society Association, Association but they generally don't venture outside of scholarship. Last year, Hillary Clinton's former spokesperson, Brian Fallon, helped create a new activist group called Demand Justice Superhead Political Advocacy Against Conservative Judges. None of these groups, however, have anywhere near the breadth of ambition of, of the Federalist Society, which both builds a roster of prospective conservative judges and sustains the intellectual regime that fosters new ones. Um, so, 
I mean, this is this is a problem. You know, the the, uh, the author believes this is a huge problem in American politics. Now he goes on, but and so these these groups raise some money. But he says the playing field is decidedly not level. The Federalist Society has more student chapters, more than twice as many lawyer chapters, and a huge fundraising edge. In 2016, ACS had total revenues of approximately $6.5 million, while the Federal Society took in $26.7 million. And the relative impact of the organizations can hardly be compared. The federal and state judiciaries are filled with Federalist judges, but there are no ACS judges to be found on the Supreme Court or the federal benches. It's just not a thing. No, they just have all these progressive left-wing lawyers from law schools. I mean, okay, so they don't have Federalist Society, but they've got plenty of, of leftist judges out there. We know it because we see them make decisions all the time. So, not really certain how this is, is, a, is the problem that this person is pointing out. But, then he goes on. So, this is the thing I want to focus on. Because we get into this idea of originalism here. And this is fun. So, what's going on, he says. One explanation is historical. The Federal Society is simply older with deeper roots. Those trace back some years before its founding to a 1971 memo written by Lewis Powell shortly before his nomination to the Supreme Court, in which he argued that the American economic system is under broad attack and called upon the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to build institutions to change public attitudes, especially at the campus level. The Powell Manifesto, as it came to be known, foreshadowed the development of today's roster of powerful conservative think tanks, the Heritage Foundation, the Manhattan and Cato Institutes, and the Federalist Society. So let me comment on those groups again just for a second. All of these groups have a nationalist bent. Whether it's Heritage, whether it's Cato, or whether it's the Federalist Society. And in fact, Tom Woods and I just did a, his last episode of the uh, Tom Woods Show. We talked about a Cato Institute piece that was completely ridiculous. Uh, it was this piece that, uh, you know, libertarians, should libertarians, uh, you know, support states' rights and secession? There's, there's, no, they shouldn't because those things are just bad uh, in, in many ways. And so and this is this is Cato Institute. This is supposedly conservative, uh, and that's that's undermining the entire position of originalism. And it's undermining not just that the entire basis on which the United States Federal Republic was founded, which is federalism. Um, you can't get around it. Now, the ratification debates make all of this clear. So Heritage Foundation is dominated by neoconservatives. Where are they really conservative? Uh, you know, Cato Institute, Federalist Society. Now, I mean, one of the things I always find fascinating about the Federalist Society when they get up and they start talking about uh, originalism, and he says this is this is the uh, the issue. I mean, the Federalist Society believes in originalism, and I'm going to get into uh, that part of it here in a second. Um, but when they stand up and say that Joseph Story is an originalist, so let me, let me get to that part because I, I think this is interesting. But again, nationalism is the problem. None of these groups are federalist, real federalist organizations. They're nationalist organizations. And they're going to use the federal bench, just like the left would use the federal bench, but now lefties are complaining about that. You see, they created the apparatus. Now, the, the if the quote-unquote nationalist conservatives are going to get there, or nationalist quote-unquote conservatives are going to get there, uh, then we have a problem with that. Um, so, ACS didn't get started until nearly 30 years after that memo and 20 years after the first Federalist gathering at Yale Law School. By the time liberals got the wake-up call, Bush v. Gore, the Federalist Society already established itself as a hugely effective networking organization for ambitious conservatives. And they, he talks about the fact that George W. Bush, half of his uh, federal nominees were Federalist Society members, but half weren't. Half weren't. So that means there's a lot of people out there that weren't Federalist Society members. In part, ACS creation was triggered by shock. Frederick says, courts that 
the left had taken for granted since Chief Justice Earl Warren had handed the presidency to Bush. The right had a significant head start, and when it comes to populating the federal bench, it's only possible to catch up while in control of the presidency. See, this is it. It comes down to that. Uh, This is why they're going so hard after Trump and why they are panicking because of the federal court system. It is absolute abject panic. You don't need it. I mean, if you had real federalism, this federal court system would be irrelevant. And I'll talk about that at the end of this podcast. Uh, One of the counter rates, of course, is the law school itself, which he gets into. There's no question that law school faculties are overwhelmingly overwhelmingly liberal. But when it comes to delivering results on the federal bench, the academy is not the same thing as an organization with a focus mission and a budget. Um, So... He says, you know, we've got this. But, I mean, look, if Obama was in in office right now or a lefty was in office, say Clinton was in office, they'd be tapping these federal these uh, these law schools for for uh, law professors for jobs on the federal bench. I mean, this is exactly what would be happening. Um, So, yeah, there's no there's no lefty progressive judge society. uh, But that doesn't matter. That really doesn't matter. Uh, Now. He goes on to say, uh, The most significant reason for the disparity, though, runs deeper and poses a daunting challenge for the left. Since its conception, the Federalist Society has had one consistent and very graspable ideological backbone. The Constitution should be interpreted as having the meaning it had when it was enacted. So-called originalism gives the Federalists a catchy intellectual hook. The agents of change in American law, they argue, should be legislators, not judges. That's how the Constitution intended it. Hence the famous proclamation of Justice Antonin Scalia, the first faculty advisor to one of the Federalist Society's founding chapters at the University of Chicago, the Constitution is dead, dead, dead. The Federalist mantras are succinct and understandable. The law should be neutral. It is the duty of the judiciary to say what the law is, not what the law should be. Now, of course, they're channeling by saying that. This is this is where the Federalist Society, I, I, and I saw, I think it was Edwin Meese got up and did a talk about uh, Joseph's story. And uh, again, let me get to Joseph's story. The problem with all this, and I'll say this about law schools too, all these lawyers, and I know there are lawyers that listen, or law students that listen to this podcast, so I mean, uh, I know they're there. Lawyers go to law school, and or pr- prospective lawyers go to law school, and they are swamped with nationalist, uh, or nationalism, I should say, or nationalist judicial opinions. This is what they're told is accurate. Supremacy of the federal bench, the supremacy of the general government, uh, that uh, we've got incorporation, all of these things. This is what they get hit with from the time they enter their law schools until the time they graduate. And that's because even on the right, I had I saw Edwin Meese stand up and say that Joseph Story was an originalist. Now, this is an interesting argument. Joseph Story, the man who served on the bench with John Marshall, of course, John Marshall from the founding generation, Story born a little bit, little bit after that. He was a young man when he took, uh, uh, took the bench, um, appointed by James Madison. And uh, the thing is with, with Story, he made a lot more money as a law professor and as an author writing his commentaries on the Constitution than he ever did serving on the federal bench. And these, these commentaries on the Constitution are still read today, today, by law students. And they're cited as originalist documentation. Edwin Meese stood up and said this, I believe it was at a Federalist Society meeting, that Joseph Story was... An originalist. Now, this is remarkable to me. It's absolutely remarkable to me because Joseph Story was in no way an originalist. In fact, he was distorting 
the original intent of the Constitution because he flipped the ratification debates on their head. And here's how he did it. He said, okay, look, all the opponents of the document said that the Constitution would do this, this, and this, and so that's what it does. Now think about that for a second. You're basically saying, all these guys are out here saying, this is exactly what the Constitution is going to do, so that's original intent. No, no, no. The problem is that all these guys made arguments against the Constitution, and then the friends of the document said, but that's not true. This is not what the Constitution is going to do. It's going to do all of these things. Or it's not going to do these things. You see, that's the Constitution that was ratified. That's the original Constitution, not the one that's, that's been flipped on his head by Joseph Story. And he also creates this nationalist myth from the very beginning. And he channels John Marshall to do that, who channels Daniel Webster, who channels, uh, who channels uh, Alexander Hamilton, and then Abraham Lincoln ch- channels them. Or at least Webster channels Marshall. So Marshall channels Hamilton, and Webster channels Marshall, and then Lincoln channels Webster, and there you go. And we've got this quote-unquote conservative monstrosity of centralization and nationalism. This idea that there are, uh, there's just one people, the states are a, we have a unitary United State, uh, not states, United State. This is the Federalist Society. Now, not all the people subscribe to that. I mean, granted, not all the people do. I know, again, for Federalist Society people listen to this uh, who are right on board with Think Locally, Act Locally. They are Upshur, Bledsoe, Tucker, Taylor. I mean, these are the people they read. Uh, if more people read those individuals, uh, we'd be in a lot better position. Spencer Rowan. I mean, these individuals who were saying, saying, no, 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 you have completely destroyed federalism with this federal bench. Uh, so... It's this idea of originalism that is uh, people don't understand. I don't think the maybe the writer does understand original, originalism. He just doesn't know how to articulate it very well. Uh, he goes on to say in the piece, the Federalist mantras are succinct and understandable. I read that. <clears throat> Whatever its theoretical weaknesses, says Columbia Law School's Jamal Green, originalism's simplicity is one of its chief selling points. In the abstract, it's widely popular. In one study by Green and his colleagues, 92% of people expressed support for the idea that a good Supreme Court judge should uphold the values of those who wrote our Constitution 200 years ago. Um, it's not the values. See, this is, this is where they miss the whole thing. It's the understanding of the Constitution as ratified. And then he goes on, standing behind the original meaning of the Constitution gives the Federalists a deeply appealing claim to be a neutral, timeless American tradition. It also, it's also complete nonsense according to the scholars who have looked at the rulings of originalist judges. Those judges tend to issue politically conservative rulings regardless of the larger principles at stake. Judge Richard Posner, no liberal, has ridiculed Scalia's claim that originalism and the related doctrine of textualism offer greater certainty than competing principles, such as interpreting the Constitution as an evolving document. Originalism, for all its pretenses, is no more than a fig leaf for injecting politics into the judiciary. Okay, now, first of all, the left does have a unifying theme. It's this living, breathing Constitution, a malleable document. So Posner, I mean, look, Posner, uh, first of all, um, Posner uh, has, he, he took the bench, uh, federal bench, and uh, he was very much in line with an economic defense of the original United States. But socially, he's in, in, in terms of federalism and state issues, he's never really been that good at all. I mean, he's a corporationist. And this is what you're taught to, to, to think is the proper legal position. 
law schools are indoctrination zones. I mean, that's all they are. It's all, it's all that colleges and universities are. But they're indoctrination zones, and they're there to get you to believe that incorporation is somehow in the Constitution. The 14th Amendment somehow did this. It's completely wrong. But that's what, that's what lawyers are taught to believe. And, of course, it's something I try to undo on this podcast. Um, but the fact is, uh, we have, we have uh, originalism as in, distorted in this piece. It's not what it really is. Uh, it's not from the values of the time. It's from an understanding of the American structure of government. We have states, and those states have all the powers not granted to the central authority. And those powers are limited by Article One, Section 8, generally, to the Congress, and then um, to the presidency. Uh, and so there are some other powers in there, of course, but generally it's Article One, Section 8. And they're, they're denied, the states are denied certain powers in Article One, Section 10, but everything else, every other power, is retained by the states. That's how the Constitution was sold to the states, and that's the only reason it was ratified. The only reason it was ratified. If you go back and read the ratification debates, the only reason the Constitution was ratified, we had a Bill of Rights, but in most important in those lists of Bill of Rights, we get a promise, are, is the, what became the Tenth Amendment. It was first on most of the lists. The only reason the Constitution was ratified is because the founding generation firmly believed firmly believed that the Federal Republic was not being destroyed by this new Constitution, meaning the states were still the central actors in this political process. Only reason. So saying this, they're distorting what originalism is. They're distorting what it is. Uh, So that's where we get into this problem of these, uh, of, you know, oh, there's nothing there. Um, and he says, you know, he, he gives away his, his, uh, his desire to have this leftist counterweight at the end of the piece. He says, maybe that core principle is impossible to articulate, which is a malleable constitution. But there's nothing for progressives to do but play defense by showing the hypocrisy of originalism. Really? Maybe it's a certain type of originalism. And look, textualism is not originalism. I'm just reading, this is what the document says. In fact, textualism opens the door to uh, a broad interpretation of the Constitution. It opens the door to that. Um, so if you're going to distort what it means, don't write about it. Don't write about it. But he says, you know, the problem is the balance of the Supreme Court is hanging by the slenderest of threads. And again, Alito, Thomas, these, are, these aren't spring chickens. Get another, get a Democrat in office in a couple of years, and they could have two appointments as well. So all this stuff is is uh, is uh, flexible. I mean, it, none of these things are set in stone. We might have a seven to two majority for a time. It could be back to five four. Um, this is why rigged elections and the other things are so important to the left because they know they need to control the, the court system. But the the beauty of all of this is that there is. This could be changed. Now, this is why the grand old stupid party really is the grand old stupid party. They're hypocritical, and I think that it's important to point that out. The grand old super party, stupid party is hypocritical. Uh, and some of these uh, judges are hypocritical about some things as well. But, you know, the, the, uh, the, the Republicans controlled the Congress for two years and the presidency with Trump in office. And I remember back when Obama was, was, in, was in office, and there was some talk about, and of course you had the Ninth Circuit, uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which um, is uh, often held up as this terrible court of appeals, and it is. I mean, you've got lefties dominating that. And of course, all it takes is one lefty judge to knock down a law nowadays. I mean, 
It's not the way it should work, but that's all it takes. Uh, and so you have that court out there, and conservatives were running around, to, or I should say Republicans, were running around talking about, well, we need to get rid of the Ninth Circuit. We need to get rid of the Ninth Circuit. Even when, even when Trump was president, we need to get rid of the Ninth Circuit. Why didn't they do it? Why didn't they get rid of the Ninth Circuit? Why didn't they just abolish the Ninth Circuit? They had the power to do so. They could have written legislation, and it could have gone through. In fact, the Republicans at one time, the GOSP, the Grand Old Stupid Party, did have the backbone to do this at one point. Uh, in 1866, they reduced the Supreme Court justices from 10 to 7. Actually, it was going to go down to 6, but it only got to 7. And then 1869, they bump it back up to 9, which is where we currently sit. Um, they also took away the, uh, the uh, requirement that Supreme Court judges do something called riding the circuit. They actually had to go out and sit in the circuit courts. They had to do more work than they do now. And uh, that was actually codified finally in 1891, with the Judiciary Act of 1891. And then in 1911, there was the Judicial Code of 1911, which abolished the circuit courts. We get the Court of Appeals, we have the district courts, it creates this whole, all these levels of federal courts that the whole point of that was to ensure that the federal courts became supreme. In fact, the Judiciary Act of 1891 allowed you to directly appeal to the Supreme Court for just about anything to the federal court system. Just about anything. Uh, this is the real danger. So you've got these Federalist judges, Federalist Society judges, who are in line with this kind of thinking, just on their own cause, on a right-wing cause. You know, take your pick of your right-wing cause, gun control, abortion, whatever it is. This is what they're going to go and use the federal court system to do to codify those things at the expense of others. So the real solution to all of this, at the end of the day, is think locally, act locally. It is decentralization. It's political decentralization, which will then result in the uh, people of the areas being able to control things themselves and not rely on nine justices, nine, nine men in robes, men and women in robes, to make a decision. Or your, your state Supreme Court, or even your local court system. I mean, you know, there, there has to be, when we talk about scale and we talk about size and scale, there have to be limits on these things. We've gotten too big to govern. We've gotten too big to have nine judges deciding everything. But this is what the left knows they can do. So this is why they're very upset about this. And uh, that really is, more than anything else, what's going on here. The threat of, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg being off the bench is causing these people to have serious, serious mental and health problems, I think. Uh, but the federal Society, uh, the judges that I've seen, I mean, they're, they're pretty awful on some things that are uh, you know, tied into the original Constitution. Um, and we know that with John Roberts, I mean, obviously, a conservative judge is not going to knock down uh, a terrible law. But that's what we think that these conservative judges are going to do. So this particular issue, why there's no liberal, they don't need it. They don't need a liberal federal society. They have law courts. They have Joseph Story. They have John Marshall. They have everything on their side. So having a counterweight to that is a good thing. Um, it's a beneficial thing. But, of course, Evan Mandary doesn't seem to think so. Who really cares what Evan Mandary thinks? But it made great podcast fodder. So we need to think locally, act locally. We need to push federalism from the bottom up. I mean, this is it's real federalism, not from the top down. You can never get that. And uh, that's how America is going to change. It's going to take a long time, but that's the process by which we're looking at that would, uh, would uh, facilitate a tremendous amount of change. All right, I will see you next time on The Brian McClendon Show.